You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. On the first Sunday of Advent in in past years, I'll often uh, talk about how hard it is for us as modern people to anticipate Kind of what Steve was talking about with our kids. We feel the same things. We maybe just don't express it the same way that that our children do. But we live in an instant, on-demand society. And so for us, patience, waiting, watching for something, it's increasingly unnatural. It feels unnatural to us. This year, though, having spent uh, the fall in Judges, I think has forced us at least somewhat to grow in anticipation. I know I've grown at least a little bit in anticipation this year. Because when we hit the midway point of the book of Judges, I was ready. I was ready for today. I was ready for the day that we'd be able to open up the Word of God and not only the parts of of Scripture that look forward to Jesus, but the parts of Scripture that actually see Jesus and celebrate Jesus' arrival and, and look on his fulfillment of his finished work. Judges concluded on a very somber, but also an anticipating note. The last line of that book said, In those days, there was no king in Israel. And we saw last week, that meant, that was the author's way of saying, a king is coming. A king is coming. And not only David, but one from David's line, who would be king of kings and lord of lords. It wasn't just the kings of Israel, however, but the other key leaders, the prophets and the priests, who pointed forward to Jesus. Collectively, they they point to a day when one anointed servant leader would fulfill the roles and the functions of all three of those leadership offices and would bring life and would bring salvation to God's people from every tongue and tribe and nation. That anointed one, which we get to celebrate especially in the season of Advent, that anointed one is Jesus Christ. And Christ is actually a title that belongs to Jesus, which means anointed, And that's why, for example, in 1563, the Heidelberg Catechism, a very famous document in the history of the church, was able to bring all of this together in the way that it explained and interpreted that title. So the Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. Question, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance, our only high priest, who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father, and our eternal king, who governs us by his word and spirit, who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. A prophet who reveals God, a priest who frees us and pleads for us, a king who leads us and keeps us. This is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the authors of this catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, compiled that summary from all over the text of Scripture. If you start to read Scripture with these lenses, you will see this everywhere. You will see the the hints of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king coming. You'll see his fulfillment of it in the way he's written about in the New Testament. Over these next few weeks, we'll look at some of those specific passages as we take a week each to zoom in on each of the three offices. But this morning, 
seeking to see the, the big picture altogether, we're going to look at one text where we glimpse all three. And it comes in the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in a place called Colossae. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, your vision of peace and wholeness comes to us both in sweeping revelations and in tiny signs of hope. We ask that by the power of your Spirit this morning, you would kindle our hearts, that we would be a hopeful people. Keep us from growing weary of waiting so that we do not miss the glory of your appearing. And yet even so, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It is in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. As Judges ends, and really as the entire Old Testament ends, the leaders of God's people have come up woefully short. God's people need a better prophet, a better priest, and a better king. And here in Colossians, reflecting back on the person and work of Jesus, Paul writes that in all things, Jesus is preeminent. So not just one aspect of his life and ministry, not just one of these three offices, but in all things. Jesus is the greatest. He is the supreme one. He holds first place. And so this morning, with the rest of our time, let's explore Jesus' preeminence when it comes to each of these three offices. And we'll follow the order that Paul does in this passage. The preeminent king, the preeminent prophet, and then the preeminent priest. So first, Jesus is the preeminent king. Verses 15 through 20 here are written poetically and are most likely part of a very early Christian hymn. They celebrate in them the, the cosmic scope of Jesus' work. Paul here is saying Jesus is the cosmic preeminent king. And he highlights Jesus' kingly role in a few ways. First, he says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that Jesus was created. Paul goes on to say immediately after that, Jesus is actually the agent of all creation. He's the person within the Trinity who created all things. Before he took on flesh, before he dwelt among us, God the Son existed eternally with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. 
So when Paul here refers to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, he means that Jesus has all of the rights, all of the privileges of a firstborn son, and especially the firstborn son of a monarch, of a king, the one who would inherit a kingdom and a kingly role from his father. Throughout scripture, we read this theme and this truth. God has a kingdom. God has a kingdom. The sphere where his rule and his reign is perfectly experienced without all of the effects, without all of the corruption of sin. And Jesus, when he took on flesh, inaugurated that kingdom of God here and now. He came proclaiming in his life and earthly ministry that the kingdom of God is now, because of Jesus, at hand. It is, as we've often explored together, a kingdom that is already, but is not yet. It has been inaugurated by the first advent of Jesus when he first came into the world. It will be consummated, it will be fully realized in his second advent when he comes again. Now in some texts of scripture, when we think about the kingdom of God, God the Father is referred to as the king. In other texts, Jesus, God the Son, is referred to as the king. So for example, if we were to look one verse earlier than we read today, Colossians 1 verse 14, Paul writes that God the Father will deliver us, those who put our faith in Christ, will deliver us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of who? Of his beloved Son, of Jesus. Jesus is the king. If we were to go over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul would take all of these pieces and put them together. There we read that God the Father grants kingly authority to God the Son. Jesus, God the Son, reigns until all enemies are put underneath his feet. And then Jesus, God the Son, delivers the kingdom back to the hands of God the Father. And so Paul here, in these opening lines of the text that we're looking at, can refer to Jesus as both the firstborn of creation and the firstborn from the dead. As firstborn of creation, Jesus is the one who established all other thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. He rules and reigns above all other powers. And he is both, as Paul writes, the source of all creation. All things are created through him. He is also the goal or the aim of all creation. All things are created for him. As firstborn from the dead, Jesus then writes all that has gone wrong because of sin. He conquers our greatest and our ultimate enemies of sin and death. So not only is he the author of creation, he is the author of salvation. And Satan and sin and death, they have sought to usurp his throne. They have sought to take over the kingdom of God. But by his death and resurrection, he's the firstborn from the dead. Jesus will put an end to all rebellion that persists against him. Now, we'll talk in a moment about Jesus as our preeminent priest and how he reconciles us to God. But as our preeminent king, he is the one who accomplishes peace, the only way peace can be accomplished, which is to conquer sin, which is to conquer death, which is to put all enemies underneath his feet and make peace by the blood of his cross. Paul here also notes in this text that in Jesus, all things hold together. So he's not only creator, and Savior, he is sustainer. And he is the head, the king of the church. So truly, as a man named Abraham Kuyper once so memorably put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Mine. It all belongs to Jesus as the cosmic king. 
Now, in these coming weeks, we'll unpack each of these three offices of Jesus, uh, as well as the difference that those offices make in our lives, as well as how we, as his people, we are not Jesus, but, but reflecting him, imaging him, we get to play these kinds of roles in the world. We get to be, in our own way, as the people of God, kings and prophets and priests in the world. For this morning, I'll just say this. We are far too incompetent to run our own lives. We need a good king who will lead us and keep us. We are far too incompetent to run our own lives. We need a good king who will lead us and keep us. And you might say yes and amen to that. If we're honest, if we're honest, many of us have built a massive wall around our hearts which keeps us from fully embracing that truth. Part of that is because as Americans, we are hardwired to resist kings. We are hardwired to be suspicious of consolidated power. We are instead more likely to insist upon individual rights and to rise up to assert individual rights. And in human kingdoms, because of how sin corrupts everything and especially corrupts power, that's often right. That's often necessary. But friends, what I would say to you this morning is it is way too easy to let that bleed over into your view of Christ and his kingdom. And in small, subtle ways, the individualism, which can be an asset at times in our society, becomes a massive obstacle in submitting to and following our king, Jesus. To let individualism bleed over into your view of Christ and into your view of the church over which Christ is the head, this is to set yourself at odds with the firstborn of creation, with the firstborn from the dead. It is to live your life in opposition to the rule of Jesus, who is the preeminent king. We need a king, and we have that king. In Jesus, All power consolidated in this one God become man is not oppression. Truly, it is our only hope and it is our only way to experience the salvation and the redemption of God. We need a king. We have that king in Jesus. Second, second, Jesus is the preeminent prophet. Preeminent prophet. God revealed himself to the world through prophets. Prophets spoke on God's behalf. They proclaimed the truth about God and about humanity and about what God had done in the world, about what God would do in the world. Jesus is the preeminent prophet. He perfectly reveals God. He perfectly reveals the truth of God. And Paul here includes two phrases in this text that point to Jesus as the preeminent prophet. First, right there at the beginning of verse 15, Paul writes, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And then down in verse 19, In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Think about this, because it's hard to wrap our minds around. All that God is, all that God is, dwells in Jesus. All that was invisible and unapproachable and unknowable about God the Father. When Jesus Christ took on flesh and entered into the world, all of that became visible and approachable and knowable. And this is the beauty and the mystery and the eternity-altering difference that the incarnation of Jesus makes. 
Human prophets played throughout the history of God's redemption an incredibly important role. But even through all of the truth that they proclaimed, all of God's truth that they revealed, there remained, as Paul goes on to write about down in verse 26, a mystery hidden for ages and generations. But in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that mystery is revealed. It's made known. When I read Paul's phrases here in Colossians, it immediately makes me think of the opening to the Gospel of John, which we looked at part of just a little while ago. John, the apostle, writes in the beginning of his gospel, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And he goes on to write, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about who's writing those words and think about the difference that the incarnation makes in the lives of the apostles. Men like John, men like the apostle Paul. The apostles, when we meet them in scripture, were either obstinate, like Paul, kicking against the goads, going against the stream of God's design and what God had revealed about himself and his plan to rescue the world, Or, if they weren't obstinate, they were fearful, like John and like Peter, who had no desire to go toe-to-toe with the Roman Empire, who were consumed by fear. But in meeting Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, especially when they meet the risen Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, the apostles were forever transformed. And rather than kicking against the goads of truth, or rather than being fearful to actually live in light of the truth, they lived courageous, sacrificial lives which ended either in exile or in martyrdom or in both. Like them, we are too obstinate or we are too fearful to really live in light of God's truth. And so we need a prophet who fully reveals and proclaims that truth of God to us, over and over again. And let me for this morning just focus in for a second on the fear piece of that. Where some of us today are prone to make an idol of individual rights and thereby resist Jesus as the true king. Others of us make an idol of safety, of comfort, of the opinions and the esteem of other people. And when we do, We live in fear rather than in line with the truth that has been revealed by our preeminent prophet, Jesus Christ. Following Jesus is not safe. But because of what Jesus has revealed, because Jesus has sent his own spirit to dwell within us, there should be a fundamental difference to the way Christians handle fear. It's not that Christians don't experience fear anymore. Indeed, we do. It's just there's a fundamental difference to the way we handle it when we do experience it. So just to bring this into the very present moment in which we are today, there are valid and wise reasons to stop doing certain things in the days of a global pandemic. Certainly it's wise and it's loving to practice precautions to not put vulnerable people in harm's way unnecessarily. But if you are a follower of Christ and you find yourself today consumed by fear, why? Why? Why the fear? And I don't say that to you to condemn you. Truly, I say that to you as an invitation to do the hard work of self-examination. 
where is that fear coming from? Where is that fear coming from? And wherever that fear exists, even if it's so discouraging to you that you find this consuming fear present in your heart, how will you respond to it now that it is there? How will you respond to it? Will you truly allow your life to be shaped by the truths that have been revealed by Jesus, our prophet? Christ has conquered death. And so Paul goes on to write in a different letter to the churches at Philippi, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do we actually believe that? There are amazing opportunities to live out long days of a long life in pursuit of Christ, more days and more moments to love and serve God and to love and serve other people and to bless them in the name of Jesus. But for all who are in Christ, this life is as bad as it gets. This life is as bad as it gets. Death is gain. Do we believe the truth that has been revealed through Jesus the prophet? If you've been a Christian for a while, you may have agreed with that statement. You may have checked that box all the way up until March when you and the rest of the world around us experienced the first ever global pandemic of your life. You may, have experienced, you may have checked that box all the way up until the first person you know, the first person you loved, contracted COVID-19. You may have believed that all the way up until the first person you know, God forbid, but I know this is true for some of you, died from this virus. Jesus never minimizes the pain or the tragedy of death. But what he reveals about himself, about us, about eternity, means that we must never be consumed by the fear of it. In fact, the safest place for us to be is in Christ, is united with Christ. As Paul will go on to write in chapter 3, For you have died. You have died. Your sinful nature, that part of you that kept you alienated and separated from God, that part of you is dead, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the truth revealed by Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the fullness of God in bodily form, the preeminent prophet. Let us always live in light of his truth. Third and finally, Jesus is the preeminent priest. Not only the preeminent king and the preeminent prophet, but the preeminent priest. The role of priests was to connect the people to God and to connect God to the people. As mediators between God and humanity, they offered sacrifices as atonement for sin. And they upheld in doing so both the holiness of God because as the author of Hebrews will go on to write, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. But also they upheld the mercy of God. His judgment against sin was placed upon that offering, upon the sacrifice, instead of upon the people themselves. In other words, we might say, priests were reconcilers. Priests were reconcilers. They were human agents facilitating the reconciliation between God and humanity, between humanity and God. As the preeminent priest, Jesus is able to reconcile not only the people of God, but verse 20, all things, all things, things on earth and things in heaven. Through Christ, Paul goes on to write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God is reconciling the world to himself. Now get this, Jesus takes on flesh and dwells among us so that he might become both the victim and the priest. 
He is the willing victim. His own flawless, perfect life is the offering, is the sacrifice. And so Paul can say here in verse 22, we are reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. But then the second half of that very same verse, Jesus is also the one who presents us holy and blameless and above reproach. Victims, the sacrificial offerings themselves couldn't do that. Only the priests who offered up those sacrifices could. And the language here of being presented holy and blameless, that's the same language used throughout the Old Testament of priests. Only now, in Jesus, it isn't continual sacrifices that must be offered day after day and week after week and year after year by his one sacrifice that we come to this table to commemorate and to rejoice in every single week by his one sacrifice of his body and blood, Jesus has accomplished and forever secured our salvation. So when Jesus presents us to God the Father someday, when we stand before the throne of God, as it says in the book of Revelation, it will be granted to you on that day to wear white. To wear white. You won't experience God's judgment against your sin. You will instead receive all of the merits of Jesus' priestly work on your behalf. And this is the real beauty of Paul's words in Colossians chapter 1. This cosmic king, this preeminent prophet, priest, and king is also immensely personal. Verse 21, and you, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled. It's not just a nameless, faceless, anonymous mob of people. It's you and me who were once alienated. We, we have now been reconciled. 2020 has exposed the depths of what really exists in our hearts. Has it not? The circumstances of these past months, how to navigate racial division, how to navigate political division, how to navigate a pandemic, the circumstances of this year has laid us bare. And the sin patterns that you thought you had under control and the fear that you thought you had matured beyond, the patience and the joy and the love that you thought you had developed, how fast has some of that just vanished into the wind in 2020? Some of us have discovered we have made an idol of our individual freedoms. Others of us discovered we made an idol of safety and comfort. And we can spend time trying to defend those or explain those away, why they're not so bad, why we have good reasons, why it's understandable that we have those things in our lives right now. Or, or we can recognize, either for the first time or in a new and deeper way, that we are far too compromised, we are far too sinful to save ourselves, that we need a priest who can free us and who can plead for us. We need a priest who somehow, having seen all of the depths of what's been exposed in our hearts over this year, seeing all of that, can still present us holy and blameless and above reproach before God. Jesus is that priest, the preeminent priest who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He lives forever to plead his finished work on our behalf. As we heard earlier this morning, the theme of this first Advent candle 
is hope. It's hope. And this week, I have had a line from the song, O Holy Night, stuck in my head. It's the line which goes, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And ours is a weary world. Are you not weary? Where you sit this morning, if you're honest with yourself, are you not weary? I know I am. I am weary of seeing the havoc that sin wreaks in our culture, in our society, in relationships. I'm, I'm weary of seeing the sin exposed in my own life this year. My fears, my idols, my anger. This morning, we can wallow in that weariness. God knows there's plenty of reasons to be weary. But the invitation held out to you by the preeminent prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, the invitation held out to you right now is to rejoice it's to rejoice, to grasp again, to taste again the thrill of hope. In verse 23, Paul goes on to write, We will be presented blameless before God, quote, If you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the what? From the hope of the gospel. In response to all that Christ has done, in response to all that Christ will do as our prophet, priest, and king, this is our role. This is our role, to continue in the faith, to remain steadfast in the hope of the gospel. And here's the amazing thing. In the original language, the tense of these words here indicate Paul actually expects that to be the case. This is not Paul injecting doubt. This is not Paul saying, man, the bar's high. Good luck. Hope you get there someday. This is Paul saying, persevere and endure because in Jesus Christ, you can. Come on. Come on, you can. You can make it. We are too incompetent to run our own lives, but we have a king who leads us and keeps us. We are obstinate and fearful, but we have a prophet who fully reveals and proclaims the truth. We're too compromised and sinful to save ourselves, but we have a priest who frees us and pleads for us. So find hope in the fulfillment of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And today, today, in this Moment, this sacred moment, instead of being wearied by your circumstances, look to Jesus and rejoice. For you, he came into the world. For you, he died. For you, he conquered death. This Advent, may you feel again the thrill of this hope. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are fickle people who desperately need to be reminded of the hope that we have in you. We are people who, when circumstances become difficult, run back to or create new objects of worship, new idols. We are those who grow weary of waiting. And instead of focusing on the promise that you will return, focus in on the weariness itself. Lift our eyes this morning because of Jesus. As we remember his first advent, that he came into the world, that he was himself the victim and the priest, help us to also long for and anticipate his second advent, the day that he will come again in glory, the day that he will not only inaugurate your kingdom, but bring it to its full realization. We long for that day. Until that day, sustain us by your grace. You are the prophet, the priest, and the king that we desperately need. And we come now to your table 
which you hold open to all of us who would come by faith. We pray this all, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.